missed you. Today we're starting off our first episode of our second season of Vida Talks. As a reminder, my name is Alejandra Gaitan and my co-host... Hi, I'm Miriam Vasquez. Welcome back. And today we're with a very special guest... Bill Schlesinger. <laughs> Hi, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. <laughs> Can you tell us, to start this conversation, um, a little bit more about yourself? So I am the co-director of Project Vida and the CEO of Project Vida Health Center, and the co-director of PV Community Development Corporation, and the executive director of the El Paso Collaborative for Community and Human Development. Uh, all of those are entities that are wrapped together in an affiliation that we generally call Project Vida. Carol and I came to El Paso in 1980, and we were initially working with a cross-border program called Project Verdad, and that transformed itself into what is now Project Vida in about 1990 when we moved into the Chamizal area. Mm -hmm. uh, the Chamizal area is where our main headquarters are located. We didn't quite know what we were doing there, and so we began to try to find out what the needs of the community were. We began with doing some door-to-door -door surveys, mm -hmm. every third door, every other block, with a long list of questions, and people were, were generous in answering them. And then we did what are called key informant interviews. And that's where you find people who know a little bit more than you do about the community. Um, school teachers, school nurses, um, community leaders, church folk, etc. And we began to ask them where they saw the community wanting to go and what were the impediments, the challenges to get there. And then where they, they saw the gaps of something that could be developed. We had a small house that no longer exists because it's now underneath the foundation of what is our, our new center and um, had people in for coffee and when we had them come in uh, that we would talk to them for the first two weeks nobody showed up and then Maggie Villanueva um, came in and she was the head of the PTA from Zavala School we found out that she had been told by the community that she needed to find out who these strange people were Oh, so they had an insider they had an insider, <laughs> and they came in, and they said, are you Jehovah's Witnesses? Are you selling drugs? <laughs> Those are the two options. Important questions. <laughs> well, so this area in, in central El Paso used to be the heroin center. Mm -hmm. Everybody was on the street corner with uh, some glass of water and selling drugs. Mm -hmm. And so it was a pretty popular spot for that. We took the answers that we got back from the community, from talking with people individually and from the interviews and from the surveys, and we put together what was called a community congress. And in the community congress, we asked people to come in and do three things. They wrote down on small pieces of paper what they wanted to see the community become in five years. And then we clustered those pieces of paper together, and we saw the general direction that came out of the community. Then what we saw from that was that they were interested in access to health care. They were interested in decent housing. They were interested in education. And later, we did one, and they were interested in economic development. So we then said, well, what are the challenges? What's standing in the way? Well, nobody would claim that community. We talked with Lafay at the time. That's when Pete Duarte was the director at Lafay. 
And he said he had boundaries on where he could serve. Mm. And so he couldn't move past those boundaries. We talked with the hospital. They weren't interested. So we set up a small volunteer clinic. And we had people who are now faculty at Texas Tech coming in as volunteers to try and, and provide some initial service. And then for education, um, we just started with young kids. And we had a volunteer come in from another church, and she did a morning drop-in service. That's when we began to see that a lot of the kids were slow developing, not because they had any medical issue, but because they were in these really tiny apartments. Uh, it was room, room, kitchen, bath. And so if you had a baby who was crying, there was no separation. So what the moms were doing was they were giving the baby either food or drink to quiet them down, making them passive. When you make a baby passive, you slow down brain development. And so we, we began to do this program, not just to let the moms get out, because some of them were happy cleaning their houses, but they were learning how to get their child's brain developed. So that was another thing we started. Really small spaces at the time. And then it took us a long time to get our board comfortable with the idea of housing. Because you can start social programs and you can end social programs. But, but once housing. you put housing down, you're there. So it took us about five years and we got our first project done on a building that had been condemned by the city. And we, we bought the land and we, we built some units on it. And that's over at Stevens and uh, and Stevens and Perra. So and right next to our main clinic. Right next to our main clinic. It's that two-story building across the street. That was our first one. So we began with things that people could see that directly addressed the kinds of needs that they'd identified, but they were, were within our scope. We could bring in some volunteer docs. We could get a little program going. We could do one housing unit. Then over time, the thing just kind of built. So we shifted, and where we are now, we've got a staff of about, what, 200, 230 people. Yeah. That staff has become how we understand what the community needs are. Because that staff, all of our staff, most of our staff, interfaces with the community mm -hmm. and brings in concerns and ideas and hopes and possibilities and have programs that we can use to leverage on top of each other. The reason I talked about that wide range of programming, there's a whole mindset that says do one thing and do it well. Mm. So the one thing that we do and try to do well is community. Community is a living organism. It's not separate programs. One of the things that we've learned in healthcare is everything affects your health. Yeah. Your housing affects your health. Your job affects your health. Your family affects your health. It all affects your health. Mm -hmm. It's not just mm -hmm. diet and exercise. It's social relationships. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at community development, you're trying to figure out how do you make a living organism whole and better, and stronger. And you only can do that when you engage the community. I'll shut up because I've been talking a long time. <laughs> no, you, you saw how we were very engaged. It was a very thorough and very interesting way of starting Project Vida. And so we appreciate, you know, that history that you provided to us. And what I would like to do is definitely touch on a lot of different things that, that you focused on. But I think you speak of all these different moments and transitions and additions to, to the programming and all these multi-level um, services. 
And I'm interested to know what is your why as to why all of this started and, and how did you continue going through and some some places said yes, some places said no. For example, we had a you we had an insider, right? Because the community still wasn't uh, so super sure. Yeah, <laughs> and and it makes sense because uh, you're telling me that that community had been somewhat isolated, right? So then they might have had trust issues. So all of that, you know, it makes sense. But how do you move forward along with what you believe is that strong mission that Project Vida represents? Yeah, that's a question I keep getting asked. <laughs> and I don't have a really good answer because it's, um, for me personally, it comes out of a sense of who do I want to be? Um, do I want to be a person with a limited network of people like me that I talk to and think with? Um, we talk about yourself, and you have to take care of yourself. So from my theological background, I'm basically trained as a theologian. Um, the self, or the soul, the psyche in Greek, is the relationship you take to all of your relationships. And that self is either big or small. And it either lives affirming life or it lives afraid of life and builds defenses and, and you do both all the time. You live big, you live small. You live safe, you live open. I understand that the journey that we're on as human beings ends by dying. And there's no way to get out of that. Yeah. So the question is, what do you do with it? And for me, it makes most sense to be part of a wide world that is as inclusive as possible, in which people learn to trust each other, forgive each other, feel with each other, and take responsibility for each other. I'm not responsible to the community but I am responsible for it. And what I'm responsible to is that center of life that is about care and love and compassion. So that's where I come from, as far as I can tell. Um, and that's a journey that I feel comfortable inviting other people to join in on, not because of allegiance to some symbol system, um, I think most symbol systems can handle that. But because I think that's the way life is. Yeah, it's about just deciding who you want to be in, in society and, and understanding that there's so much bigger things than ourselves. And and you mentioned a lot of, you know, you, you talk a lot about, yes, the, the me, right? The, what I am doing as a person, but also with each other. So that I think talks a lot of what Project Vida entails is that community approach. So that it's not efforts that are being instilled upon the community, but there are efforts that are in conjunction with what the community wants and what the community needs. And I think based on what you're telling us is that is how 
big efforts start moving forward and it start com- uh, com- committing to systems change, right? Culture change and all of those different things that connote positivity within um, a community. Yeah. So I thank you. Appreciate it for, for that very vulnerable and honest response. Um, Miriam, not too sure if you want to continue touching base of what Bill has said. Yes. <laughs> so um, I've learned several things from this conversation. One, you're very busy. <laughs> you got that from yes. what you said? You know, I got a sense, what? just a, a vague sense. <laughs> um, and two is that you have a very strong and um, rich history in terms of serving the community um, from this space of relationships and this space of understanding each other's and trying to build um, a deeper meaning to why you are here. And I understand that that's what you, where you come from and what you hope for the organization to do as well in its day-to-day activities. So at the center of it, it's what you mentioned, community. And how do we continue building community? And the first thing that I understood was is you have to understand the needs. And how you do that is you have conversations. You reach out and you recognize that some people will open the door, some people will not open the door, and you work with that because you are coming from a place of wanting to understand. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the question that I have is, once you do all of that work, and it's obviously not a work that it starts and ends, it's a continuous work, as you mentioned, how do you, like, what are the next steps to actually doing something? So let's say I gathered everyone, I had a sense of what were the needs, they were like, we need healthcare. And then you were like, that sounds complicated. And then, you know, what were the things that you did? Did you talk to people? Did you, ex- you know, ask them what they think they needed? Like, how do you move from understanding to action? And that's a constant question. Um, you, you look around and you see... Who else wants this to happen? Who has any kind of investment in the future for it? Mm. Where are the resources? Who else has done it? How can I learn from them? Um, What's a budget? How much is it going to cost to take the first step? And where can I get those resources? Um, So it's a fairly... um, it's a cliche, but how do you eat an elephant? Yeah. I see. I see. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great story. It's a great story. You eat an elephant one bite at a time. <laughs> um, and, and so you, so for healthcare, the community wanted a hospital. Well, that wasn't going to happen. So we had to say, okay, what can we do? What's within a, within a possible scope that takes the first step? And it was a volunteer clinic. Volunteer clinics are horrible. People show up when they can. Mm. When they can't, they don't. You don't have enough resources. It's not set up professionally. You don't have a medical health record. I mean, it, but it's a step. And so you take that step, and then you build on it. And so we, we looked around, and we saw that there was a little bit of money to bring in somebody to work in that community from maternal and child health to do an experimental project. So we, we applied for those funds. 
we found a, an RN to work with, and we, we started that. I looked around, and I, I sent out a note, a note, our system's Presbyterian Church. And so I sent out a note through the Presbyterian Church saying, is anybody interested in providing health care? Mm-hmm. And we got Roger Nasker. And Roger was a retired minister who was also a physician assistant um, who didn't have a job at, the, at that point. I met him in Ohio when we went up to take our daughter on a college trip and look around for schools. And he agreed to come down and came down. And so we had him for 10, 15 years. Um, and one of our clinics named after him. Mm-hmm. So you, 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 you look. I mean, you, you actively go out and do your research. I see. And then once you've found, once you've found the need and then you figured out what resources are available, then you say, okay, what's the first step? Practical, on the ground, make something happen. Sartre said, action removes the doubt that theory cannot solve. You do something. Mm-hmm. You, you do the first step. And then you learn a lot. Because when you try to change something, it teaches you. It teaches you, well, there were these rules you didn't follow. Well, here's this system over here you didn't know about. You would never know that until you took the first step. So that says to me that there was a lot of growth that is not necessarily linear because, you know, you take steps based on the information, the resources that you have available at that time. And maybe they were not sufficient or maybe they were not the right ones or maybe they were not... Perfect, but that's not necessarily something that stops growing and doing. The word perfect. Um, there's a Greek word that we translate that. It's called telos. Mm. Tets where you get tele- teleology, mm-hmm. the end. It also means finished. So if it's perfect, then it's finished. It's then it can't grow. That's right. I'm learning so much. <laughs> I do like Greek. where, where are my, where's my nose? It's okay, they're taping everything. <laughs> I'm like, darn it. <laughs> well, and I think I'm interested to know more about, you know, how you talked about the community wanted a hospital. It was well, you know, let's meet in the middle. Let's let's see what we can do. And so then you did this volunteer clinic, and what I'm what I'm interested and curious about is how did you get people to actually attend the clinic? One and two. Because we'd already talked to the people that said they were needing it. So it would, did it continue to grow because of word of mouth? Yeah. Yeah. And and when? Oh, we, we also hooked up with another organization, La Mujer Obrera. Okay. Oh yeah. And they were, mm-hmm. they were in the community, and they were the ones also who said. We need health care. So we, we worked in, in networks right from the beginning. That was that key informant interview mm-hmm. part. Got it. Where you talk to the community folk that are already there, and you integrate what you're doing with them as well. So then you take... I didn't mean to interrupt. No, Sorry. no, no worries. Go ahead. And then I interrupted. Oh, my God. <laughs> you're fine. It's all good. We did this so well. <laughs> um, so, you know, part of then that listening is identifying those key and trusted organizations and people in the community. And right. then you go to them and you're like, hi, I, I would like to, you know, join your efforts in building this community. You start by being very upfront. I want to I want to get your head get into your head and know what you know a little bit so mm-hmm. I can figure out how not to be an idiot. 
And it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you ask. We had some people that just wouldn't talk to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had one guy who said, gee, I'm sorry you're here. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's part of it. But you find yeah. people willing to be open in almost any situation. There are, there's somebody in almost any organization who is open and willing to work with you. You just got to find them. What I'm understanding then is that a lot of the things that come into bringing things into action is talking to people and just spending a lot of time doing that type of work, calling people up, going to meetings, identifying who knows who, and seeing who wants to come to the table and build things with you. And so, and you learn from those experiences and from those that have been in that community before you. And it's one, it's one to one with all those people before you bring them together. I see. So mm-hmm. you you don't. We did not ever find it helpful in the beginning, at least, mm. to try to convoke or convene rather a larger group, because then people came in and they didn't know what your agenda was. They didn't know what person next to you was mm-hmm. we, it was building a level of relationship and trust individually individually and then you could bring people together because then everyone had a framework of who you were and what you mm-hmm. were about basically right. and if you were asking them to come you had a reason yeah, i think i also notice how the, at least for for what i've seen in terms of my professional experiences how People kind of want to just stay within their own expertise, I guess, within organizations or businesses or whatnot. And the, but that creates silos. That creates silos where a community or an individual has a holistic need to a variety of needs. And so I think that it's very interesting to be able to hear your perspective and your story because it speaks of how it's kind of perseverance and grit and resiliency, the ability to bounce back, right? The ability to be able to say, you know what, maybe it didn't work out this way, but that doesn't mean we're going to stop. And so for for people who, who are listening and may want to continue, you know, their efforts to reaching community members and understanding their needs, what would you say to them to empower them to be able to continue doing their work? You can always say that you won't answer this question, any of our questions. <laughs> um, flexibility. Yeah. Do not. Okay. Bonhoeffer talks about people who have a wish dream, uh-huh. and they let the wish dream become the judge of the current day, and if it doesn't meet it, they pass judgment on it. You can't live out of a wish dream. A wish dream of the ideal world cannot determine whether things are good or bad. You have to look at the current situation and see what you'd like to have happen and have that inform from the basis of what is possible. So you have to bridge that gap. And if you live out of a wish dream, you'll end up hating everyone because they won't do it. Um, And you will destroy what you tried to create. So 
We started in economic development. I read a book, and it was a book about the Green Bay Packers. They're the only uh, football team that is owned by the community. I did not know that. I didn't know that. That's why they'll never move. And after they were created, um, the NFL has to rule that you can't do that anymore. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) the Green Bay Packers were owned by the community. And in the book, it talked about building businesses that were that had community investment in them. And we, we read about the Grameen Bank and how you do circles of investment. We tried all that. None of it worked. We tried investing in a couple small businesses. They wouldn't, take, they wouldn't let us buy in. Um, we tried the, the circle of lending. People didn't pay each other back. No. It worked in Juarez. We tried it in Juarez and it worked because you had a different kind of community. Yes. So then we said, okay, that didn't work. So then we began to look at the microenterprise that was family-owned. And we figured family in El Paso hangs together. Yes. So that's when we began to develop the microenterprise technical assistance program. So we would reach out to these folk, and we would teach them how to operate in systems that they didn't understand, regulatory systems, banking systems, etc. Mm-hmm. And we changed our whole direction. If we'd stayed with the dream of community-owned businesses, it wouldn't have worked. But microenterprise technical assistance is working because we shifted from a community model to a family model and identified then what was blocking those families from moving forward. We learned that in an interview with one of them. Actually, two interviews. First, we interviewed the the guy who had gone into a, a bank to get a loan. He said, I went into the bank, and they asked me for my um, financials, and I just had my taxes done, and so I showed them my financials, and they still turned me down. They don't like me. Uh. And we went in to talk to the banker, and we said, we're trying to understand what goes on here. Will you talk to us? He said, yeah. He said, well, this guy came in, and he said he brought in his taxes, but the tax preparer had clearly made it, so they didn't have to pay any taxes. And the way you do that is you show you didn't make any money. So his financials showed he wasn't making any money. So I couldn't give him a loan. So you had these, these two perspectives going like this. So he said, okay, we've got to figure out how we bridge those perspectives. And that was where we started microenterprise technical assistance. So you, you try stuff. If it doesn't work, you try to understand why. And you try to get underneath it, not because people don't want to make it work, but because there are structural issues underneath almost every problem. You have to understand them. Yes, and and one thing that stood out to me is, based on what you you mentioned, is adaptability. Uh, And the way to be able to be manual with your dreams and goals. To be able to, again, if your goal is to essentially meet the needs of your community, well, then it's going to shift because human beings... Are, are, not, are, are, are not the same every single time that you meet them. Everything changes. And so it's like a domino effect that you kind of have to keep up. And it, that reminds me of um, the, the idea of improvement science, right? Of being able and, and open to make iterations to your plan until it works. And then see and understand what it is that worked so that maybe you can continue strengthening whatever pieces that end up working. So I think that that's really interesting to be able to hear is how you're tying, you know, 
characteristics and traits of a human being and how then you are able to utilize that to, for example, describe the fact that El Paso is very family oriented. It is like we see it in restaurants and schools, like a school event has one particular award ceremony for one child. And it, I've been part of it where I'm the aunt and then it's my mom and then it's the grandpa and then it's the parents and mm -hmm. then everyone goes. And so I think it's a very unique approach to the El Paso community that works. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Emma Tiazzioni wrote a book called The Active Society, and it's about this thick. Oh, God. And basically <laughs> what it says is that a viable society can envision its future and move towards it. And that's what we want for our whole community, that it doesn't get hung up on where you put a, a particular piece of infrastructure in Duranguito, but how you take the vision and work it with the community so it comes out for everybody. And, and you spoke about how, you know, it, it's coming out for the community and, and you did this work um, years back. How do, you, how do you see these same efforts but now in the present day? Are they the same? Are they, have they had to change? Have they had to adjust to the present times? Could you talk a little bit more about that? What I see and what I hope is true is that this organization has become that kind of active society mm. and is learned to adapt and to change and to look at need and see possibility and figure out how to network internally within Project Vita to make things work. So, you know, I'm not going to be around forever. We all die. Are you sure? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I have no question about that. <laughs> I have no idea how long, but there will come an end. And what I'm hoping for is a community that is sustainable in itself, that can continue this kind of work together and find itself not looking towards some heroic individual, but to looking towards an ability to internalize ways to work together as a whole. So what I'm understanding is your hope for the organization right now and into the future. It's okay. I thought I turned it off. It's all good. Technology can sometimes get in the way. Gremlins. But then it can also help us connect with people. Gremlins. So <laughs> it's all good, Bill. It's all it good. now off. <laughs> Apologies. So what I'm understanding um, from this conversation is that you envision the organization as right now and into the future to emulate the values that we do for the community, which is to have conversations with each other, to understand who has the expertise, who has the knowledge, and to bring people and departments and programs to the table and see how we can bring things together for the betterment of the community because our understanding of the need or of the context will be you know, limited maybe to what we interact with and the programs that we do. But if we bring more to the, to the table, then we have a broader understanding for that. So that's my internal vision. Mm -hmm. My external vision is that we be that kind of a role model 
uh, facilitator um, for the whole community. And that we encourage others to join not with us, but with themselves in this kind of an approach. And how do you think we can continue doing that to be able to instill it in them to be advocates, I guess, to be advocates, to be um, those connectors and facilitators of those conversations? To be vulnerable. To expose, Mm -hmm. to share, to invite. Is um, something that that I thought about when you were speaking about community conversations is that is that something that you think nowadays still works or is that something that maybe because of technology or because of um different ideologies like it it may be harder but could still work what what are your thoughts about that um okay my symbol system is pretty straightforward it's Mm -hmm. presbyterian so we have a, a cultural icon who tried to do this sort of thing and got killed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, yeah. but then it comes back. Mm-hmm. I think this way of doing life is sustainable mm-hmm. and will reemerge one way or another mm-hmm. because I think it's real. So I don't know if this organization can do it or not. Institutions come and go, and this is an institution. Um, I would hope it could do it, but if it can't, I have greater trust that this understanding of life is embedded in life itself and will remain. Yeah, and I think um, just bouncing back from what you said, it's it's not just so much an institution, but the opportunity to represent what we can do for each other. And yeah. that is something that you want to continue moving forward as, as part of the work that we do. So to wrap up this conversation, I'd like to highlight the fact that I, I learned a lot. Um, <laughs> I wish I had had a notebook with me. But I think that it is very admirable to be able to separate yourself from, let's say, a legacy of an institution, but more so a legacy of who you want to be in this world and what kind of impact you want to make so that you can do work together um, and and be able to be adaptable, to be resilient, to be able to think outside the box and not be so um, stubborn about one specific dream or goal and instead be adaptable to change based on not just what you want, but what others may want and may serve the community. So I want to thank you, Bill, for your time. I really appreciate it. Miriam, I don't want to cut you off. Just thank you, Bill. <laughs> thank you both. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you, Bill, again, for joining us. And we hope to see you in the next episode. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs> Ha <laughs> <laughs>